Yeah. It can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace, at least. In a better spot to settle. My brother said the Americans haven't got a ghetto. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show, Community Spread. I'm your host, Kevin Lundell. On the pod today, we have a really special guest. Her name is Rachel Alder. And Rachel is just one of those people who you need to sit down with and and hear and listen to her story. The perfect person to have on Community Spread. It is these sort of uh, close conversations from somebody in our community that has the ability to change our outlook on life. And Rachel is just one of those people. She's also just an incredibly ambitious and young uh, person with goals, and she's done already done so much in her life. Uh, and, and soon we're going to have her on again to talk about her career because we didn't get to talk about that much. But uh, she currently um, is involved with victim advocacy and has spent a, a good chunk of her career working with survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking. Uh, she's gonna, going to continue on to get a master's and a PhD uh, and in social work and neuroscience. She, uh, her goals for the future are to continue in victim advocacy, human rights advancements, and reforms of our foster care and criminal justice systems. So, uh, and, and you know, she's driven by all to do all of these things and accomplish all of things because of her story. And so today we got the opportunity to sit down and hear her story and hear of the of some of the incredible things that she's done and lived through and how they've shaped her and how they can inform and shape us. So now's the time where I get to tell you a little bit about what I'm thinking about or what I've been learning about. And it really ties into our conversation with Rachel. And it's been about the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the filling of her seat by Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, who uh, President Trump nominated just recently. Now, Amy Coney Barrett is vastly different different than the notorious RBG. She is very much a legal conservative, and with a lot of the Supreme Court cases that are coming to the case in the future, uh, could mean a lot for people, the most vulnerable in our populations, and what their rights are going to be. Uh, there's two cases coming up the week after the election that are going to be fairly that are going to be really important. Uh, one of these is on the future of the Affordable Care Act, which is where I get my insurance. It's where uh, anybody who qualified for Medicaid under Medicaid expansion gets their insurance. Uh, so we're talking about literally millions of people losing their health care coverage during a pandemic if this shift is turns to happen. Uh, another one is a case known as Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia, uh, which is set to be heard in, in that same week after the election. Uh, and in this case, it's uh, uh, about a religious adoption agency that's seeking the right to turn away LGBTQ couples. Uh, this case will determine whether taxpayer-funded organizations are allowed to discriminate against LGBTQ people. Uh, so Amy Coney Barrett's uh, personal opinion and her views on those definitely shape her legal views. She hasn't said how she's going to rule in those cases, uh, but she has spoken in the past about these kinds of, of cases. And uh, during a lecture she gave at, the, at Jacksonville University uh, when she was the professor at Notre Dame, this was in 2016. She defended the, the dissenters in the Oberfell versus Hodges case. This was the case that uh, landmark case that made it so uh, gay marriage was legal. And uh, also in this speech, she showed kind of an ignorance or even a hostility towards trans people by um, using the word physiological males to describe transgender women. Uh, also, uh, she signed a letter in 2015 addressed to Catholic bishops uh, where she detailed her personal beliefs about marriage and family being founded on the dissoluble commitment of man and women. Uh, so, you know, she has personal beliefs on these that could directly reflect some of those people in the LGBTQ community. There's going to be future cases that are going to come up about the rights of LGBTQ people. And this 
justice may just swing the court in the opposite direction. Uh, so it's really concerning. Uh, it could affect directly Rachel's life. Um, she mentioned in the podcast that she plans on adopting kids. She doesn't know how she's going to do that. But um, so this is this is important stuff. And I'm not sure what we can do about it. Uh, but we need to be active. We need to, uh, only thing we can really do going forward is vote. Get out and vote. Uh, vote in this next election. Vote for people who want to protect LGBTQ rights, who want to protect our health care. And if you, that, that's what you can do. Get involved, be active, vote, and seek out leaders who are going to protect the rights of the most vulnerable among us. So now you're going to get to hear a wonderful story and conversation between me and Rachel Alder. Well, welcome to the pod, Rachel. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You know, since I've started doing this, it has been my greatest pleasure to be able to speak to such impressive people like yourself, people from all walks of life, all different backgrounds, and to be able to hear and uh, share in their story and share in uh, expressing their story to our community. And it's really, it's just, it's something that has just surprised me. And, I'm, and so I'm just really looking forward to a, a conversation with you, Rachel. So tell us a little bit about what you are up to now. I mean, we've just heard all about all the things, all the advocacy you're doing and all the different groups, but tell us, tell us what you're doing right now. Sure. So my day job is I'm in social work and I work at a nonprofit. We mostly work with low-income families, um, but I've mostly worked in human trafficking and sexual assault advocacy. Um, I'm also in school finishing up neuroscience and social work. Um, and then I consider myself a full-time advocate. That's just what I, I feel called to do. So I, I love to public speak. I love to do that through um, education panels, um, anything I can do in the community to contribute some of my perspective, some of my story is, is really what I'm most passionate about doing. And I think I kind of first probably got introduced to you um, on a, one of those education panels um, where yes. you, because I'm an adoptive dad. And you are yep. an adoptee, and I know I that you've been you've <laughs> spoken at those um, many times, um, and so you've got a very unique perspective. You're advocating for for that group. Um, where, where else are you speaking? Where else are you advocating? So yeah, definitely a lot of adoption, foster care events, a lot of Black Lives Matter events. Black Lives Matter is very near and dear to my heart, and something I feel strongly about uh, speaking up about and educating on, and helping people understand what it's really about. Um, I also work uh, in the Latino community. I'm, I'm fluent in Spanish and I love working with uh, the, the youth, especially in the schools. Um, they have these amazing programs uh, in the schools that I love getting to go and, and work with those youth and just anything I can do to connect with really anyone that can relate on that marginalized scale. I think that it's really important that those groups come together and that we have that um, that safe space to go to relate and to learn and to learn how to better advocate for ourselves and also how to educate those around us. And uh, how are you feeling today? Uh, today, as we're recording this, uh, news was announced that Breonna Taylor's um, killers will not be charged, um, the, at least the cops that uh, shot her. Um, there was one that will be indicted for shooting at the building. Um, how, are, how are you feeling in this moment? How did, that, how did you feel with, about that news? You know, it's, it's heavy. <laughs> it's a it's a heavy day. And my heart hurts because I really thought that with everything that we've gone through with George Floyd and everything that's happened in the last two months, it really genuinely felt different this time. It really felt like more more people are listening than ever before. More people are having these conversations than ever before. Like changes. It's got to come this time. Right. Like it's going to happen this time. And then to hear this news today was just a devastating reality check for I feel like the black community that oh you know you show up for some of the rallies you show up for some of the protests but here we are weeks later and we're not even talking about George Floyd anymore and and what's going to happen with with Breonna Taylor's name too 
you know, it's just going to be another name to these people. And, and that's, that's devastating because we've been doing this for years, you know, every single time this happens, we've been doing this Trayvon Martin, you know, every time. And now they're just another name, just like his, that we, we talked about at one point. Oh yeah. He's one of those. Right. And, and I'm just devastated that we're here and, and going to have Brianna in that situation. It's so heartbreaking and I don't want to see that happen. And I, I, I really was taken back this time. Yeah. I can't imagine what those emotions were like uh, for you. You know, it's, uh, you know, being, being in that work and, and uh, having put your, your heart and soul into it and, and f- feeling like there's progress and then feeling like there's backwards uh, progress mm-hmm. or back to the status quo that had to been, had to been really difficult. Uh, we're going to come back full circle to, to some of those conversations, but um, you're also advocating in the LGBTQ community and you came out yes. a couple of years ago. Um, one, what one, just one year ago, just one. I just hit my one. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so tell me what you're doing in that group. So I love to do anything with Encircle. Um, they're an amazing nonprofit. They have a couple houses in, in the state and they do wonderful work with youth. And they were the first place I went. So anything I can do with them, um, a lot of education, just educating those that I grew up with or those around me, um, any speaking opportunities. I've had the opportunity to share my story and my experience growing up in LDS church and growing up gay. Um, and I just am really passionate about people understanding perspective because I think perspective has so much power, especially in the community that I grew up in. I think when people hear my story, it kind of causes a little bit of a shift. You know, they, they know me so well, but when they hear what my experiences were, I think it, it almost makes you think twice. And I think that's why hearing those kind of stories are so important. Yeah. And wow, you're doing so much. I mean, you're ta- you're in school. You got you got job. Yes. You're speaking. You're advocating for three different marginalized communities. Uh, what is motivating you to keep pushing right now? What is what is that drive? Um, I think it's it's kind of situations like today with with Brianna Taylor, but I think ultimately it's uh, it's six year old Rachel. I think about what my world needed desperately when I was six and looking for role models that had the same skin color or hair as me and, and that understood what it was like to be queer and in Utah and in the religion. And, you know, I just, I needed all these things and I never found them. And I think I could have thrived from a much earlier age in life if I would have had those things. And so I'm trying to put that out into the world, whatever six-year-old Rachel needs, because, because there's more of me out there and you just never know when you're running into them. That's so powerful to think about six-year-old Rachel. Tell me about, <laughs> tell me about six-year-old Rachel. Um, tell me about your family. Tell me about um, where you're growing up. For sure. So I was born in Ogden, Utah. And me too. Uh, my biological- whoop, whoop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, my biological parents were young and in, in kind of a difficult situation. And eventually I ended up living with a family who we did like our foster period. They adopted me. And um, I grew up in Davis County, Utah, Centerville. It's a great place. <laughs> I really do love the city. It's, it's a great little it's a great little town. Um, it is it is very predominantly white. It is very undiverse. And um, I have a love, not love <laughs> relationship with part of it. Um, I think six-year-old Rachel really struggled with looking like the only person of color in my neighborhood, in my school. Um, I think she struggled with being that only person of color in her family. I grew up in a transracial family, so no one looked like me in my school, in my community, anywhere. I just, nowhere. And, and especially also in my church. So I just didn't ever have racial mirrors to compare to or to look to. It was just wow. me. And so I think that affected my confidence. And I think it made me feel a certain way about myself and that I had to be and portray a certain thing. I felt, I felt like I was a bad kid, you know, just because I like look different than everyone else and everyone would kind of point that out as a kid. So it's, it's hard not to internalize those things. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. I I would never say that, uh, 
you felt like a bad kid because you looked different than your family and different than your community. That's, yeah. that's, an, that's an interesting perspective that I hadn't, hadn't thought of before. You know, one of the things I, I think of is, you know, my, both of my kids uh, were adopted from, from birth and um, you know, they're both white kids. And when we go out as a family, they can not be adopted for the day. You know, they yeah. can, that, yeah. that doesn't have to be. And you, when you're in, when you're with your family, you don't get, you can't no. turn that off. What's that like? No. As a kid, it's, it's a lot harder. I'd say as an adult, it's much easier. They just assume I'm like married to my brother or something weird. Um, <laughs> but as a kid, um, I didn't, I didn't blend in and that made my story very public. Um, people would ask very uh, personal questions to myself or my parents or talk about my situation as if I wasn't right there. Um, and that was really hard as a kid because uh, I, I think that made me feel even more like a bad kid. Oh, well, like where her her parents or where, you know, like those kind of questions that people will ask. My story was very obvious adoption. It was very obvious uh, biracial. Like there was just a lot of obvious signs about it. So I think I struggled to to know that my story is mine. And I struggled to own it because of that. It was really hard to just have it out to out to the public all the time. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that 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 being the case. Um, so, you know, do you have have you have you met? Are you have a do you have a relationship with your biological parents? Do you have you met? Have you reconnected? Have, what what's your relationship with like them with them like now? So um, I met my biological mom right when I turned 18 and it was a great reunion. We kind of had like this, this honeymoon phase for a couple months. Um, right now we don't have very much contact. Um, I think she's just kind of in a hard spot. I'm kind of in a hard spot. Um, and I just don't think it's like ready to be there yet. Um, but I really, I genuinely hope that that changes and I hope that in the future it'll kind of um, settle and be to a place where we can have a more open relationship. Um, I'm really close with my biological father's sister. So my my aunt, um, she and I talk weekly um, or, or somewhere in there. We Marco Polo. <laughs> cool. And um, yeah, she's we very relate cool. on a lot of things. Like we're very similar personalities. And so that was really cool to relate on like a biological level with someone for the first time. Yeah, I've thought a lot about that. You know, both of my kids, we have open adoptions with both of my kids, um, birth yeah. parents. Um, so they, they really don't know any different than they have. A, they have a yeah. mom and a dad and a birth mom. And um, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really great. But I wonder, what was that like? Um, first meeting people that looked like you? You know, it was the weirdest experience because growing up, I felt like this like stork baby that just like got dropped off because like I'd never seen a picture of any of my biological family, like my adoption was so locked down. Like we didn't have a choice in the matter um, just for my protection and just the way it was then. And um, so I just grew up thinking like, there's no one in this world that looks like me. Like I'm just this alien. And then I saw my biological sister for the first time and I was like, hold on, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> we look alike and this is weird. And it was cool because I was always jealous of like siblings that looked alike or like kids mm. that look like their parents. It always made me a little jealous yeah. And so that was really neat to see that in my half siblings and even my half siblings that are Caucasian, they're fully Caucasian and they're like the blonde hair, blue eyed versions of me. And I was just like, this is so weird, <laughs> but it was really cool. And it was really meaningful just because I, I didn't need it growing up and I don't need it now, but it's just neat to experience. Yeah. So. Tell me about your, your brother. Do you have other brothers and sisters in your, in your family? Yeah, so my parents had a biological son seven years before my adoption, and he's literally my best friend. We talk every day, and That's I awesome. there was no difference for us growing up. I mean, I was brown, but um, there was no difference to us. Like that was all I knew. He was my brother, and that's all he knew. I was his sister, and you know, he'd prayed for that for years, and I just grew up with an awesome older brother. And we he lives in Arkansas, which is rude of him, but. Um, we talk on the phone every day and his kids are like the most important humans to me. And Aww. I just couldn't be more grateful for that relationship. That's great. So you have one brother. Yeah. Yep. Just the two of us growing just up. The, we were just, just... little hoodlums. <laughs> we were trouble. We were troublemakers, but we enjoyed it. So. And growing up, uh, when did you first kind of think, or when did you first know, I should say, when did you first know that you were gay? 
such a hard question and I get that yeah. a lot and I don't always know how to answer it because I've always known I wasn't into guys and that's what I would call it. I think internalized homophobia and just growing up where I did, it wasn't that that made me gay. It just made me not straight. If you know what I mean? So I was just yeah. like, I know I'm not into guys, but that doesn't mean I'm gay. It just right. is a thing. <laughs> and I just left it there. So I didn't date. I didn't really go to dances. I didn't do any of that in high school. And I was just like, I'm going on a mission, like, don't talk to me. <laughs> and so I just avoided them. And um, I think that I, I think I knew all along. I just didn't always know what to call it. And then once I did, I didn't want to call it that. So mm. yeah. that was kind of that journey for me. And then um, when was when that moment? I, when was that moment then you that you did and you but you didn't want to call it that when when was that? I, I mean, probably like late, late elementary school, early junior oh, wow. high, like right when people started having crushes and I was just yeah. like, I don't know what you're talking about. Boys are like ugly. Like this is not working for me. I don't know what you're feeling, but we're not on the same page. And so I started thinking about it and I just, I didn't necessarily like say I felt that way about girls, but I knew I didn't feel that way about guys. And I, I think I knew what that meant. And I just kind of stopped there and I knew I wasn't ready to have like, that internal dialogue with myself. So I just like put it on a boat, said, I'll come back to it. And sure enough, 23 last February, I, I came back to my little boat and <laughs> I just, uh, I listened to this podcast and ha had a really cool experience and it just allowed me to kind of call it what it was. So. Wow. Yep. That was probably an empowering moment to be able to call it what it is. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And terrifying. Both. And, and terrifying, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. When you were, uh, so you, you're growing up, you're in uh, the LDS community. Uh, when Were you hearing some of the dialogue about uh, homosexuality and how, and, and how did that make you feel? Were you contemplating that with this concept of I'm not into, I'm not into guys? Were you, what, what was that like? It was hard. I mean, I heard really hurtful things that I didn't agree with. I heard um, things that offended me, but I didn't know why. Um, and I think it just was really hard to kind of grapple with this. I don't agree with what I'm being taught. I don't agree with what I'm hearing, but I don't know why I feel that way kind of concept. It was really confusing to me. Um, but I just knew I didn't like it. I, I knew a lot of people that disagreed with uh, gay couples adopting kids. And, and raising them. And I thought that was beautiful. And I knew the realities of what kids experienced in foster care. And I was like, how, how amazing that kid doesn't have to suffer. Right. And, and people are caught up on who's raising them. And wow. just those little things just never settled well in my heart. And, um, and it was really hard to kind of cope with that, that pain over and over again, every time there was a conversation about it. Wow. And with your background, uh, having been in the foster system and like, that, and hearing that kind of rhetoric, yeah, that that must have been pretty painful. Um, also, when did were you were you ever confronted? Mormonism has this complex history with race. Um, when were you first com confronted with that, and and how did you feel? How did you feel about that? Um, as a kid, I had um, someone that was uh, in my school, and they had talked about how, well, you know, in the scriptures that they talk about having brown skins, you know, because you're, you're cursed. And so God cursed you. And so I think that's kind of where that mentality of like, I'm, I'm bad came in. And that came in at a very, very wow. young, young age. Um, and that was really hard because I took God very seriously and I took religion very seriously. And so to have mm. someone say something like, like it scared me to death that like I, I did something like in the, a prior life or something that I didn't know and you know this is my my penance and that was really hard as a kid it was really confusing and I like I said I didn't have religious leaders or family or friends to go to of color that could understand what was being said and could kind of help me navigate that in a way that they understood you know they really had been there and I wanted that I didn't want to go to someone that didn't understand um so I just kind of I kind of internalized it and kept that one to myself and and that was a lot that was hard you, you put it on, you put it up on the shelf and you're devoted to God, yep. you're devoted to religion and you decide I'm going to go on a mission. <laughs> yep. Yep. Where, where, <laughs> where did you get your call to? 
I got called to the New Orleans Spanish speaking mission. So New Orleans party Spanish speaking party <laughs> party mission. Oh yeah. That's that's yeah. incredible. I, yeah. And so you 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 go you go to New Orleans. I'm just trying to picture this. You go to New Orleans, you leave uh, white, white Utah <laughs> and yep. you go to New Orleans and you're surrounded by people of color. What did that feel like? Christmas. It felt like Christmas morning. Like I just woke up and I just like my first day there, I was just like, like I've been to California and stuff, but this was like a whole new level. And there's like jazz on the streets and I'm just like vibing. I'm like, this is my place. This is my people. Like, this is good. And I just, I remember I couldn't stop smiling like ear to ear. Like that place is my home. Like I will live there again. I, the feelings and sentiments and just the, just the vibe there makes me like, just like smile like ear to ear just to even think about being there that that place felt like like home I felt like I, I fit in in a culture and in a community kind of for the first time for me it just felt like I could be who I was you know that uh awesome. makes me smile just hearing you talk about it <laughs> yeah <laughs> and a, the food and the food <laughs> all the food one of our favorite places I went to chiropractic college in um in the Bay Area, California. And one of our favorite places was a Louisiana kitchen. Love oh, that. it'll do you. Oh, right up there in, in Berkeley. So good. Mm-hmm. So good. Uh, so you're, you're, you're on your mission in New Orleans. You just you're, yep. have this awakening. You're with people of color and there's jazz on the street. Um, how is it, how is it as you're starting to try to teach people about Mormonism and uh, are you, are you getting any feedback about the church's history about race during that time? Yeah. Yeah. So starting out, I mean, my first part of my mission was mostly only in Spanish. So it, it went pretty good. They're very receptive to Christ and anything about Christ really. Um, but my secondary, we did a lot of English and, uh, it got hard. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. they're Southern, they're, uh, you know, Southern Baptists through and through. And, um, a lot of them were, african-american and they they came at me not 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 the companion they came at me with the questions and they said how could you how could you a person of color come here and tell me about this church that says it's about our people and that was really hard for me because i'd never been asked those questions before i'd never asked those questions before and now i'm sitting here on this man's couch like um you know, <laughs> like I I didn't have a good answer. And I, I went through the proper channels to try and get good answers. And I never felt like I found ones that sit with me. I never felt like I found ones that um, really made sense. And and I'm on the hot seat every day out there. And so that was really hard, too. That really that made me think for myself, though, for the first time about some of those issues. So that was, I think, good in a sense that it made me really process it for myself. I was, uh, I served a, an LDS mission too, way back in the day. Uh, oh, I yes. went to, uh, to England, London South mission, and I had a companion from, uh, from Uganda. Um, oh, wow. and he, he was incredible. Just a really, really awesome guy. And we had just recently baptized someone. He was, he was a young kid. He was 18 years old in the church. And he was just like, consuming and reading and reading and reading and he had just been baptized and one day we go over to his house and he had he had just read through into i believe it's in second nephi somewhere where it talks about this skin of blackness and he looked at us and was like i don't believe in this what is this (laughs) and like 19 year old kev was like my companions got this i'm just gonna turn it over to him (laughs) my black companion he's gonna nail this and just like you, he kind of, suddenly I looked at him and was like, whoa, like there's not an answer for this. And you, you don't have an answer for this. And we don't have an answer for this. And all of a sudden I was like there trying to, you know, console my companion and, and talk about this really complex situation that there's not, a, it's not, it's, it's the only answer is it's racist. and. Um, so yeah, I, I had only, I had one of those experiences and it wasn't even directed at me. And I, you probably experienced that over and over again. Mm-hmm. God, it's, it's incredible when you you're out there and you have all the answers and all of a sudden you don't in, in one moment, <laughs> you know, it, it's like, Whoa, what, what, what do we do? <laughs> 
it's it's intense. Yeah. That is intense. And, and for our listeners who don't know, I mean, the, the LDS Church also has, you know, some other complex or history. The, the black men in the church and black women were not allowed to go. Black women and men were not allowed to go to the temple until 1978, um, well past the civil rights movement. Um, and black men were not allowed to receive the priesthood. Uh, some of our listeners, if they've gone back and listened to we had uh, George Garwood, who was the South Ogden City mayor, the first black mayor. Um, he talked about his experience and wanting to go on a mission and not being able to because he was black, um, because it was pre-1978 and some of his experiences with that. And um, it's a lot. It is. It's a it's a heavy past. And I just I just wish it was something that could more openly be addressed. Um, I, I'm never one for, you know, a, a bash or a blank, you know, but I think that just um, calling a foul can speak volumes you know when when we learn how to call our own foul i think that that can that can really move mountains and i think it's so powerful when people can say you know what i messed up that was my bad but i'm gonna do better next time you know i just think a conversation like that and and spinning it in that sense like (laughs) i think it could change a lot of the conversation about it instead of making it such a taboo thing it doesn't need to be doesn't need to be like I I agree. Like, how much good would it be if we could have leaders of the church really come out and say we were we had a racist past and we made racist policies that affected people's lives and hurt people and we apologize for that and we're mm-hmm. doing what we can to do better going forward. Yeah, yeah. Or or even I love the conversation that's come out of um, the situation with George Floyd and everything about um, what what is it about saying like. Um, not is it like not being racist isn't enough it's being actively anti-racist or is it some, something along those lines where it's it's just saying you know what like we didn't intend it to be a, a racist thing or whatever the situation was but that's not enough it still was it still affected people in that way and we're going to fix that and we're going to make that better you know what I mean like I, I loved how people started talking about it like that like it's not enough to just be like I'm not racist because, okay, well, what does that make complacent to racism? Wasn't well, that the, almost the same yeah. thing? You know, so just I loved that that conversation came out of the, the George Floyd and really getting people talking about education and, and everything when it comes to race. It's not enough to just not support racism. It's you got to be actively anti-racist. You know, I, I learned a lot from that from that dialogue. It was like, oh, I, yeah. I did, too. <laughs> I did, too. I thought that was very powerful. Yeah. Uh, so what what years are you on your mission? So you're you're. 20 years old and it's so I was 19 um when I left so 19 and then 20 um and I left in 2015 and came back end of 2016 so so 2015 to 2016 so November 2015 this is Hmm. this was a a moment that for in, in LGBT communities uh inside the LDS church there was a a a really a just a sad, sad moment uh, that came out. Uh, and, and this was when the church announced a policy that um, basically proclaimed that all married um, gay couples were apostates and that their kids were not allowed to uh, be baptized, to be blessed in the church. Um, and if they wanted to be, they had to wait till they were 18. And at the time they were 18, uh, they would basically have to disavow um, their, their parents. You're, um, you're on a mission, pretty, pretty young in the mission at this point, probably. And when this, this yeah. news comes out, you know, you don't like guys. Um, what was that? What was that like? Uh, I just say, um, I don't usually get emotional, but thinking about it this time for some reason, just really, um, it hits me in a hard spot. I think you're out there and it's, it's a religion and it's a church and it's a institution that you have dedicated so much of your life too. And you're literally out there for 18 months working so hard to do the right thing and to help people. And the only thing you want to do is, is bring them closer to God. Right. And while you're doing that to hear something like that, um, man, um, It was really hard because I felt like I was damned to God 
and I'm out here spending my time and my life trying to invite people to him and I'm not even worthy. I'm not even worthy to approach him anymore. And no matter what I do in my life, I can't be with someone that I'm attracted to that I'm in love with because that's a damnation. Um, and the thought of having to put my kids in that situation, um, I, I, I wouldn't want to do that to my kids either. And so it made me not want to get married. It made me not want to have kids. It, it, it kind of threw my whole life into this, like, what what do I do? I'm, I'm out here now. Like I have, <laughs> I have 15 more months of this and I know I don't agree with this. I know this hurts me. I know this impacts me um, and my family, my future family. Um, and I just, I just kind of shut it down. I, I had to put it in a box. I had to pretend it wasn't there. I'd never talked to anyone about it. I never talked to um, even my family or f- close friends. I never wrote anyone about it. I, I literally acted as though it wasn't there because I just I couldn't. But it was such an interesting, com- like complex thing to feel like this church has been my home for 19 years of my life. And I've given everything I can to it. And I'm out here doing everything I can to make myself straight. Because in my mind, I wanted my mission to make me straight so bad, so bad. And I was working for that. And as I'm, I'm striving for that, this bomb just gets dropped. And that was so heartbreaking. And not just for me, but just also thinking about all the youth and all the young people in the church that are hearing that message too. And hearing that they're not worthy either. And I think to me, I know that wasn't their message. That wasn't their intention, but that's what was heard by the queer people that were affected by it. And that's the thing we need to remember. That's the foul that I wish could be acknowledged is, is what we heard, not what everyone else heard in the church, but what we heard, because what we heard was very different and it was very deeply painful. That's so powerful. Um, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, the, that this is where my shelf broke uh, with the church and over, over a long period of time as well. But um, I lived in the Bay area, California during prop eight and um Oh, that was really hard. And um, to see the church put their thumb on the scale and, and make, make gay marriage illegal, at least for a, a short period of time. And uh, they did, they put their, if you lived in that area, they put their hand on the, they put their thumb on that scale and they put their money behind that. Uh, at least the members put their money behind that. The church as an organization can't necessarily, but the members certainly did. And they were, the organization pushed the members every week to donate, to make calls to, and, and, and they flipped that, they flipped that vote. Uh, and that was heavy for me um, as a person who wanted to be um, both open and loving and cared about people, but also cared and loved about his religion at the time. Yeah. Uh, that was hard. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time over the next few years uh, kind of advocating for uh, gay, gay people uh, in the church and trying to create space and trying to think that I'm going to be that guy that can that can make this work. Um, but ultimately, like you said, uh, for me, it was, it was thinking about the kids and thinking about my kids. I always said, you know, if I had it, if I had a gay child, I'd be, I'd be out because the, the, I always felt like the church was a violent place for a gay youth to grow up. And, um, and so I always like, I'd be out and, and I couldn't live in that space for very long. Um, before I was like, well, then what, are, what are we, what am I doing here? You know? And yeah. so, yeah, that, that started to kind of break, break my shelf, um, as well. Um, but I can't imagine being in your situation and what you were and on the mission and yeah, that, that was really hard. Yeah. It, it definitely was a, a complex situation to be, to be in. It's just hard to know what to do. Yeah. So you, uh, you stick it out, you stick it out, you put it in a box, you stick it out mm-hmm. and you keep, sure you keep, you keep talking, you keep preaching Mormonism, keep, um, hoping Mormonism is going to make you straight <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and you come home and what, what, where does your life take you as you come home? Um, so as I came home, I jumped right back into school and, um, I think that was, that was good for me. Um, religion, instantly was very complicated when I came home. Um, I think I almost um, almost immediately uh, stopped attending 
Um, and it just was, I think the closer and closer I got to coming out, coming out to myself, um, the more painful things got to hear um, at church and, and just in the community and everything. And it was just really, really hard for me. And I lasted about six weeks in Utah County and uh, <laughs> moved, moved a little bit further north. Um, and I don't know, I just really tried to focus on school. I focused on work at that time. I got into working in sexual assault and human trafficking and fell in love with working in that field. So it was a great time for me career-wise and educationally. And I just kind of had to put um, religion kind of on, on a back burner for a little bit. I just kind of needed to breathe and, and take some space. Um, and I think that was really good for me at, at that point. Yeah. And um, so you're like, I mean, probably in your community, in your parents' eyes, like, it seems like you're kind of like the poster child here, right? Like, you're kind of doing everything right. Is that, is no. that, I'm kind of getting that vibe. Like, you no. went on, a, I mean, like, you went to school, you went on a mission, you came back, you're going to school. No, I do plenty of grief. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> I would have been a pain to raise. <laughs> well, there's one more. There's one more aspect to your story. You uh, you became Miss. When did you move to North Ogden? I know you moved to North Ogden, right? We have to talk about this. So I technically <laughs> I didn't live in North Ogden. I went to school at Weber State, so that's how I was eligible to compete. But that's that's where I was, you know, born. But um, yeah, so I I lost a bet in 2017, and the consequence of said bet was to compete in a beauty pageant it's a scholarship no competition now scholarship competition scholarship competition um and i only knew like miss congeniality version of what that was and so i show up to this thing wholly unprepared so out of my league like i'm wearing heels like gay women don't wear heels <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you know that, but like that does not work. That is the stereotype that for me is most definitely true. Like, not a good thing. I had to buy them for this competition. I did not own a pair. <laughs> That's how bad it was. Oh, good mercy. I had to dance. Like, it, it was a whole thing. But the funny part of the story is that I won. So well, you must have crushed it. <laughs> like, you think you were not prepared, but you, you won. You, you crushed it. I honestly only give the credit to the interview. Like every, if they judged the onstage dancing portion, promise you I would have lost. Like, oh man, that was bad. <laughs> it was bad. Um, but the interview, I loved the interview. That's that's kind of my my space. So I, I really sat into that and enjoyed that. But but yeah, I won, which was amazing because it's paid for school for like ever, which has been phenomenal. I'm so grateful for that. Um, but yeah, I won and um, had to serve as, um, got to serve as Miss North Ogden for a year. And then um, at the very end of your year, you compete for the state title of Miss Utah. So that's pretty, pretty exciting. <laughs> oh man. That was, a, wow. that was a growth. That was On, a growth experience. <laughs> that was a growth experience. It sounds like you're not too afraid to step out of your comfort zone uh, and just oh, try something new. That was like a leap, a big leap. <laughs> so uh, tell us what it was like. I mean, we know we've kind of gone through this background um, a little bit with the church and where their stance there, there they stand um, on gay marriage and homosexuality being a sin. What, when did you come out to your family? So I came out to my family June of last year. So June of 2019. And I wrote a letter as I was leaving to compete for Miss Utah. So I knew I'd be gone for a whole week and that I wouldn't really have communication with anyone while I was there. And you have to stay in a hotel with everyone. Like it's this whole thing. Do, do they like quarantine <laughs> you during this time? Like they, you can't? they really do. You can't leave. You can't go out on your own. Like you get dropped off and you like, literally like it's, it's for safety, like, like legality, insurance reasons, whatever for the organization, they have to do it that way, which whatever it's fair. So we were kind of on this lockdown mode and, and you're so busy anyways, like you're busy morning to night doing so many things. Um, and so I thought this is perfect. I will leave this this way. I won't say things I'll regret. They, they won't see the, say things they regret. We could come together after a week. You know, we're not going to speak out of like uh, a rash, you know, a rashness or anything like that. We can come back and just like talk. And so, so wait, so wait, so you wrote, a, you wrote a letter. I did. I wrote a letter. I wrote, wrote a letter. it was like one, go ahead. 
you wrote a letter and 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 left it uh before oh, yeah. you left <laughs> i was out of there yeah i i hit it and wow. then i texted them after i left i was like there's something over here love you bye oh <laughs> wow. just like oh yeah i was gone i hightailed it wow. um well, i actually think i actually think that's kind of smart though like because then it gives yeah. it gives them some time to process you don't have to see each exactly. other's immediate reactions and have yep. that way on you know, I, I think that's really smart. How did that, how did that pay out? Um, I think that it was hard for them to understand why I did it that way at first, but I think now that we, but before you do that, tell us what's in the letter. What does the letter say? Okay. So the letter essentially, I didn't want multiple coming outs. So I didn't want to be like, I'm bi to test the waters, even though I'm gay. Or like, I didn't want to be like, this is where I'm at with religion. Or like, I didn't want to have to come back and have these huge, heavy, like hard hitting conversations or like, I'm going to date or, you know, I didn't want to come out multiple times. I just wanted to be like, this is me. Take it or leave it. Like this is just yeah. on a platter. So yeah. I, yeah. I just said, you know, I'm gay and I'm okay with that. I am going to get married. I am going to have kids. Don't know how, but I will. Um, and as far as religion for me right now, that just looks different than it does for you. That doesn't make it less than that doesn't make it bad. That just makes it mine. And that's okay too. And that's something that I'm not really wanting to talk about right now. And I, you know, just ask for some respect of the space of like the the concept and, and the conversation of religion um, just while I was, you know, kind of coming out and processing. So I just kind of had all those in a letter and just said, this is where I'm at. Um, if you need more time than this next week, like I totally respect that, like, let me know. Um, and I think that this week will be good for, for us both. Just, you know, just trying to explain why I did it the way I did. Um, and just that it was really out of love. Um, and just that I wanted them to have time to really just think about what I was saying and who I truly am and that that doesn't change who they know me to be. And just left it at that. And, <laughs> and what happens? <laughs> and what happens? Um, so I was at Miss Utah and, um, it just was a crazy week. I didn't really get to talk to him much. So I was kind of nervous how like they felt. I didn't really know because we weren't talking during that week just because of the, you know, being there and it was so crazy. So um, I, I had a lot of fears that week. I, I went through every worst case scenario. I went through all the fears. Um, and then at the end of that week, um, we were kind of able to, to talk and reconvene. And um, I think it really was hard because there was so much. I don't know if maybe it was a little too much up front, um, but I think it was was a lot. I think almost more so like maybe religion than almost the gay, because I think there had been like some signs that I was possibly gay. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like obvious, but there was enough for them to question, you know? So I think they had a little bit of prep with, with gay, but I don't know about like religion, if that was something that they were maybe prepared to think about me feeling differently than them about um long story short we ended up taking just some time more time after that week and I needed it I, I I asked for it and I think it was really helpful um and I share that part of my story because I want people to honor what they need and I want people to know especially in coming out and to do it the way that you know you need to do because it's yours it's not for other people I wanted to do things to make other people comfortable and I didn't want to ask for, for a break or like these things, but I knew what I needed and I worked through it with my therapist and just really, I knew what I needed and I had to honor that. And this was really the first time that I honored what I needed, regardless of how it would impact other people. And that was really healing for me. And that was really beautiful that it wasn't just coming out, but it was me owning what is, what does Rachel need, you know? And that, that really taught me how to, how to do that, how to ask for what I needed in spite of how others may agree or disagree with that. Um, so it, it taught me to be tough. It really did. It was hard though. Wow. Very, very hard. <laughs> that, that's, that's just great advice. And, and I think, you know, I think that's part of, of Mormonism and that culture is that we, we tend to put ourselves on the back burner. And mm -hmm. so for you to this, like, like, this to take and, and, and that was, and I'm going to take my power right now. And, uh, yeah. and I'm going to, I'm going to do what I need to do, um, is incredible and great advice to those who are, are in that situation and are, are ready to take that step. Yeah. It's so empowering and not just to own who you are, but to, 
to do it the way that you need to, because it's such an individual thing and it's such a sacred thing. Um, and I just would encourage anyone going through that to, to own it as yours and don't do it any certain way for anyone other than you. How did your brother respond? Um, I think it was, I think it was hard for him. I think it was, I think a lot of just the things we grew up hearing come to our mind first when we hear about it. I know I was guilty of that, (laughs) you know, five years ago, I, I, you know, I would have thought of the things that we just heard, you know, in our culture, in our schools, whatever. Um, So I think it was hard. I think it was a little bit of a, I don't want to say a shock to him because I'm not like, it's not that not obvious with me. (laughs) I feel like, I feel like you can kind of pick it up, especially when you're as close as he and I are. Um, But I think it was, again, I think it was more just kind of like the, maybe some of the religious differences. Um, And, and we've, we've talked through it. And, you know, I think um, having time and having space and having um, the process to learn, I think really helps um, people grow. And I think we've come, so much closer together as he's learned on his end and as I've learned on my end of ways that I can respect people with different beliefs than mine and and same with him. And um, now it's just, it's something we talk about. It's something we joke about. It's, it's a, it's a trust. It's um, it's just built our relationship even stronger. It wasn't perfect. Wasn't easy at first, but it's, it's come so, so far in the last year. And I'm so grateful for, um, my family's willingness to learn and to educate themselves and to question some of the, the things they were taught growing up and to think that maybe, maybe there's other truths. Maybe there's, there's other, um, things that I just don't know. And to be able to admit that I think is huge. Like you said, kind of in, in the culture that, that you grow up in to be able to admit that's massive. And I think Mm -hmm. that opens the door to be able to just see other people I think when people just see it and see the humanness of it it takes away this like taboo concept of gay you know (laughs) well I love that you and your brother were able you know the rest why I asked is because you described your relationship with him earlier and how much you guys have this love and love for each other and this awesome relationship um and so I I really wanted to hear how he responded and and it sounds like it it took some work you know and and that's how relationships are right it always does. And I think that's the thing is um, me, especially, I, I always want to protect those I love and I want to pretend like things are perfect because that's how I was right. You know, that's, that's the same thing. It's that cultural concept to pretend that things are perfect, but you know what? I'm tired of that rear view mirror perspective. I want to see the whole thing and the honesty and the whole thing is that it's not perfect coming out's messy, coming out's ugly. It was painful. Our first conversation was really painful to me. Mm. But it made me so much more grateful for the fact that he is where he is now and that I am where I am now and that we've come together over our differences even more so. You know, I'm black. He's white. I'm gay. He's straight. And none of that matters to us. We have we can overcome anything, any difference to us. But I'm not going to sit here and lie and pretend that it was just this peachy conversation of coming out. Coming out was the hardest thing I've ever done. But it also showed me more about realness of people. And their dedication to a relationship because of their willingness to learn. And that shows the true side of people. Yeah, I had one of these tough conversations right after Prop 8 passed uh, with a really good friend uh, um, who was gay. And she, um, I had two friends. I had one friend that I worked out with every day who was straight. And uh, he disowned me as a friend. And um, did we did not, we were in the same class as the other, did not speak to me again for another year and a half. I'm, um, for the whole time we were there. Um, and then I, and then I have another friend who I, we sat down and she, I, I asked her if I could come to her house and, and chat with her. And, you know, I'm, I, all the things your brother said that were painful, I probably said, um, and she killed me with kindness and just love. And, you know, it's just, it was an, it was, it was a life-changing experience, a life-changing conversation and really the catalyst for these conversations that I have now, because I know these personal conversations can change, can change lives and can change perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think back to my friend that, uh, that didn't speak to me, you know, so there's, and, and, and what kind of power that is and that, that every person takes their power in a certain way. 
and mm-hmm. that that it's not wrong. It's like uh, for him to take that power and take that perspective. That's the way he knew he. That's the way he felt yep. like he. Uh, that's was his stance. That was why he showed mm-hmm. up, and yep. it was probably a push and pull from both of those people that got mm-hmm. me to a, a more a, a more tolerant and more an accepting and a place where I could be a, an advocate in the future. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, so those, yeah. it is those, those conversations and it's that love and that hate and the combination and, and the juxtaposition of it all, uh, yep. that can, that can move us if you're open to have the conversations. Exactly. And that's the thing is that every single thing that essentially not everything, but like most of the things that I have heard that have been painful, whether it's from family or friends, you know, they were all things I grew up thinking too. If someone had, you know, because I had such like such internalized homophobia, like I would think the same things as other people, you know, that we heard growing up. And so, you know, it took me being introduced to the LGBT community to completely question everything I thought. And I think when you get that human side of it and you see it in a real aspect and you see the raw of maybe someone you love or someone you really have known, and then you understand she's been gay this whole time, <laughs> you know, and then suddenly people's perspectives start to like, oh, well, if she's been gay, maybe, maybe my perspective on this is off or maybe I don't agree with this or that. And I think when people just take a step back and they hear first of all, that it's not a choice. And second, that you're the same person that you've been your entire life. I was gay from day one. (laughs) Um, When those two things are realized, I have found personally that I haven't run into yet a person that's not willing to at least learn a little bit more. Mm, And I think that's just, that's power right there. Yeah. Did it, uh, these conversations and your relationship uh, with your brother, as it grew closer, did it change his relationship with the church any? You know, I can't speak to it too much because we don't talk about it a ton. Religion is just not typically a conversation. Um, I think it did, if anything, I do know that it um, opened his eyes on things. I think Mm -hmm. it caused him to maybe think about certain things differently. Um, And he will defend LGBT um, individuals and he will uh, fight for me tooth and nail. And it doesn't matter who that is. So I... um, I've heard him express frustration when certain things have been said um, within the church. Um, I've, you know, we've been able to relate on, on kind of that level of being able to acknowledge where a foul should be called. And Mm. to me, that's huge. That's so validating to hear um, those that you care about, whatever side they're on, not side. I don't want to say side because I hate that, but um, whatever, I guess, um, position or perspective or um, involvement they're they're on with religion or with the church um you can still call a foul you can be fully invested fully involved and still just say hey you know what that that maybe there there should be like a flag right there you know like maybe we should maybe we should review that or maybe we could spin that a different way or that shouldn't have been said and we grow up thinking we can't say that for some reason and so I think that's been really cool to see that kind of shift and that mentality of like, yeah. I actually don't agree with that. And that's okay. Yeah. We don't have to just agree with everything. And um, I think that's been cool, not just for other people, but for myself too, to feel that permission. And uh, so at what point did you start um, getting involved with, with Black Lives Matter and start advocating with that community? And, and what was that like as you, um, reached into to your community? Um, so that started for me, I mean, I really started uh, educating and advocating probably high school, um, especially f- within the adoption community. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of, of people wanting to learn more about um, adopting ch- children of many different races um, and what it was like to have a transracial family and um, raising uh, a child of color in the state of Utah and what that's like. Um, and so I really connected with uh, the Latinx community, with the black community, with with a lot of different communities on what that's like um, and really trying to do my part to help make it better for youth growing up. And so they had resources because we didn't have any. Um, and so really throughout that high school, my first college years, um, and then obviously, especially this last year, it has just been like 
to the pavement, like running, marching, speaking, whatever I can do, because um, changes, changes got to come and we just can't keep doing this. So what happened in your life is we, we, you know, George Floyd's death happens and we start to reach this, this historic moment of uh, there's feels like there's some, some momentum building and tons of people joining the movement. Um, what, what were you doing at that time? What was that like for you? That was a time when I really jumped into, um, I kind of did a shift. I'd been very heavily involved in LGBT for the last year since coming out. And it was kind of a shift for me to kind of come back into race and equality, equity, all of that. Um, and it was, it was so cool to be part of the marches. I've never experienced something like that, let alone in the state of Utah. Um, and I had the opportunity to speak before, I think it was one of the, one of, I think it was like the third day of those initial marches for George. And um, I got to speak in front of a, a couple thousand people that just showed up in Salt Lake to represent. And I was blown away that in Salt Lake City, Utah, there were 3000 people marching Salt Lake, like mind blown, mind blown. And to have the opportunity, I mean, it just like, I don't know, I just was like taken over by like the spirits of the ancestors or something, because it just was like, I just felt power and I just felt um, the surge of advocacy stronger than I've ever felt it in my life. And I just needed to be heard while people were finally listening on this topic. Yes. So I, I shouted, I shouted yes. from every microphone that they gave me. And I just, I wanted to preach and I wanted to be heard and I wanted them to understand that this has got to stop and that we can't have another George Floyd and we can't have another Breonna Taylor and this has got to change and it's got to change now. And I also um, wanted to advocate that people understood what Black Lives Matter means, because I hate when people take Black Lives Matter and distort it with with looting and with destruction and with all of these things, because every protest I've been to that's been sponsored by Black Lives Matter has been about peaceful protest. And I'm not saying anything about the looters or rioters. I understand where they're coming from and I get why they're mad. But. I'm part of, of speaking up. I'm part of uh, participating in systemic change and, and kind of going through those processes. And so um, something Black Lives Matter has been doing for the last couple of years has been implementing less than lethal weapons in police cars. And no one knows about that. No one knows yeah. that that's happening in our state, right? Yeah. And um, true change. Just things like that. Yeah, true change, genuine change. And I'm not about just defunding the police. Like, I think, yeah, we could look at how we could reallocate funds, but I think we need to make training longer for police, which would require more money. And I think that we need to make training better. And I think that we need to look at reform, but I don't think taking away money from the system that's already broken is going to necessarily fix the problem. So it was just kind of trying to to get that perspective out there um, that not everyone thinks this certain way that people were negatively um, stereotyping it to be. And that was really important to me because people were finally listening and then people started portraying this false narrative. And yeah, I had, I had someone out of the blue message me uh, the other day that said, how do you, you know, cause they've been following me and what we've been doing and, and how do you, how do you feel about this? And it was a link that was like, you know, the black lives matter is a Marxist organization. And I just said, Hey, have you spoken with anyone from that has participated in black lives matter? Have you spoken to anybody that Thank leads you. black lives matter? Thank you. I said, <laughs> I said, I have. And yeah. I, I know what they're about. So I know I don't need to click on the link. And I suggest you get off Prager you and go speak to someone <laughs> who's involved in black lives matter. So. Amen. Seriously yes. though. I hate that. I hate that it's portrayed as, as that. And that's just not what it is. So just get educated, learn about it, hear about it, go to, go to a meeting, come to an event, like, like learn. <laughs> don't just, yes. um, portray what media is trying to get us to believe. So tell me what, you know, we've kind of gone, we've kind of gone full circle here. Tell me, speak to six-year-old Rachel now and what she needs and what we can provide for her. I think if any message that I could give back to six-year-old Rachel, it would be that authenticity is the most beautiful thing that a human can be, especially when it's hard. 
And I would just tell her to bloom in that plot where she's planted, even if it's by herself, just bloom. Let your flowers, let your flowers grow and glow and just be you. You know, I I think there's um, so much distraction and so much distortion in what we're told of, of who we need to be. And I just would hope that she would hear the message of and remember that the only things that can be brought to this world by adult Rachel Alder start with six-year-old Rachel, right? That those things, they start there. Follow your passions, follow your dreams, make it happen and just grow into that authenticity and fight for that authenticity no matter how hard it is because that authenticity is the one unique thing that you have to bring to this world. And it's the one unique thing that you have to leave behind. That That's your legacy. And that's the most beautiful, powerful true raw thing that you could be and that you could bring to this world and you never know who that's going to bless and who that's going to change. Thanks so much, Rachel. Uh, true pleasure. You're amazing. Keep up that fight and uh, really like the advocacy work you're doing in, in all of these spaces uh, is, yeah. is incredible and uh, continue uh, with health and happiness. Thank you. I appreciate it. You as well. I, I love what you're doing with this. So thank you. Yeah. And that's it for our show today. Special thanks for to Rachel for coming on the show today. Uh, I really thoroughly enjoyed that conversation, and I hope you did too. Uh, so don't forget to smash that subscribe button, rate us on iTunes, and if you also were moved by this episode, click the share button, copy that link, send it to a friend, or share it on social media. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. The government supplying the people crack for chip. Brainwashing the folks, every single cat's asleep. Though that Jim Crow side effect trapped in a mind state. And it seemed like we had a peak of the crime rate. My brothers, yo, listen, our sisters go missing. And we down on the daily, some kill for the dime's sake. I'd rather tell the truth while kicking this rhyme straight. Half the people illiterate, can't read or write. Try to enlighten them, they tell you we don't need your life. See how early we leave college, straight up to the gig. We don't get the graduate, we got trade up to the league. With no second plan, hoping we got it made into a gig. We need more doctors and lawyers, politicians and that. If you feel this in your heart, then I'm probably kicking the fat touche. And they talk, they ain't power and shout here. Everybody's dead broke and impoverished, y'all swear. I leave the everyday life based on mad wishes. The only jobs they have was provided by bad bitches. They'd rather get some brain than law that broad knowledge. Can't pay back selling me, and we can't afford college. Around here, the stake is always high, so they ban. Scream, you fuck the law. They'd rather leave and die for their gangs. They got nothing to lose, but they sick with hate. Mad at the world, we got a bone to peak with fate. It's a white privilege. For the kids to the slave master We were left for dead Designed to hit the great faster It's a setup And we ain't meant to survive Look how far we don't came We made it to this land of surprise Though the prophecy says We all been to a bride Spread the word Let it be known The heavens had to survive Right here live in the flesh That's real Americans said we gotta get up